Hello and welcome to this week's Thursday Top 5. I'm Paige. I'm Anna. Happy Thursday. This is the first time ever we are recording a Thursday Top 5 separately because Anna went home for a little bit. So hopefully this all works out. You won't even be able to tell and you're listening at the right time. Yeah. Um... The first 30 seconds seem to be going great, so let's hope it stays this way. It's all good for now, but that being said, I think there was actually a lot of news this week, so we're excited to get into our headlines. Yeah, and also a big shout out to our producer, Marcus, who is going to have to edit this like separately, which is a lot of work, so thanks. We are so appreciative. (laughs) But yes, let's get started. First up, of course, we have an update. As reported by the art newspaper, quote, scientists unveil whitest paint ever and museums can't wait to get their hands on it. So researchers at Purdue University in Indiana have spent six years developing a paint that reflects 98% of the light from its surface and deflects infrared heat. This compares to 80 to 90% of the light reflected by commercially available white paint. So about a 18% difference up to. Yes. So a while ago on the podcast, we talked about the blackest black paint ever called Vance of Black, which was developed in 2014. And British Indian artist Amish Kapoor is expected to be works at the Venice Biennale next year using using the shade of black paint. And so like the really exciting part of this story is that although the scientists have declined to reveal which museum it is, an art museum has apparently been in contact with the team and is asking to exhibit the white against the Vanta black. So they want to have like the whitest white and the blackest black together in an exhibition. That's crazy. Hopefully it's a museum in New York and we can go see it like very soon. Would love that. But Kapoor actually owns the rights to the Vanta Black, but scientists behind the White is White ever are working with a producer to distribute the pigment in the next few years. So it's not owned by an artist, but like like the Black is Black just by scientists. Right. And it's almost more like scientific than true art because are they just going to like paint a wall? Like I don't really know what their exhibition plan is, but like you said, I really hope it comes to New York because I would love to see it. I'd love to see it on canvas just because like I feel like so many artists from like from previous movements like Rauschenberg and stuff have done like white on white canvases and like black on black Malvich squares and things like that. So hopefully like I don't know I just think seeing it on a canvas would be very cool. It's almost a continuation of those movements but into modern day and it's so scientific now. I just think it's so cool. Yes very. But I think we're ready. Our first headline of the week comes to us from Artnet, where it was reported that, quote, Sotheby's just launched a science and pop culture department, citing growing hunger for dinosaur bones and spacesuits. So recently, there has been a lot of news. I think we always love talking about it on the podcast. But Sotheby's has been auctioning Mm -hmm. off really interesting objects, including a plastic crown worn by the notorious B.I.G., There were photographs of UFOs that seemed to really extend beyond the typical department parameters. And the auction house, taking notice of all this excitement, has decided that they will be consolidating these sales into a brand new department under the title Science and Pop Culture. 
This was so exciting. Um, the division's head, Cassandra Hatton, previously worked in the books and manuscripts department, which is actually the oldest specialty at Sotheby's, dating back to 1744. Like, that's what Sotheby's started as, like, like selling or It was the founding books. department. Yes. And I feel like this is not super well-known, but the books and manuscripts department actually handles all sales that don't fit into a specific category. So like the space sale, for example, and I didn't learn this until I was interning there, but the space sale is yes. handled by the books and manuscripts department, which doesn't really make sense. Yeah, the space sale opened while Paige and I were actually interning there. And it was so cool because they, we got to see all of these spacesuits um, on the opening night, like before people even came, which was amazing and they had like all of these like really fun gift bags with little like souvenirs that I still have so yeah but I also didn't I forgot about that yes but I um yeah I also didn't know that the books and manuscripts department is the one that handles things like that so it's good that they're making a new department yeah and when Haddon was asked how she deals with more atypical objects like in the past she said quote when I described a spacesuit or an object that flew to the moon I did it in a serious way I treated the objects with seriousness and so people took the objects seriously and I just really loved this quote because it does speak to how serious the auction house takes the objects and why people might be more yes. inclined to buy them from Sotheby's versus somewhere online because you do have like the certification and people trust the auction houses i agree and the department's first sale will be held on april 28th and is offering a wide range of objects such as a dinosaur skull that has an estimate of four hundred thousand to six hundred thousand dollars and a bust of Leonardo da Vinci formerly owned by Andy Warhol that has an estimate of two hundred thousand to three hundred thousand dollars and previously bidders for this type of sale have a really wide age range it's 24 to 90 plus but there does tend to be a focus on appealing to kind of like silicon valley type tech people because they do have this ingrained interest in this type of object and also leonardo dicaprio like notoriously collects dinosaur bones yes that's true um (laughs) and some of the items which is those tied to astronauts tend to appeal to american audiences the most but other um things have global appeal and I think it's really a question of personal interests because like this is going to be a category of such a broad range of things I agree and the new department is aiming to have four sales a year and they noted that they're not really interested in items that have multiple editions or copies because these high estimates and the interest behind them are really attributed to the unique nature of each lot in addition to the stories that come alongside them. Yeah, this is going to be so cool. I think it's such an exciting addition to Sotheby's and like I'm not going to say I saw it coming because I didn't like I didn't realize the first sale would be so soon but um, like I think it was needed. Because all of these things should not be under under the books and manuscripts category. No, I agree. There's such a growing desire for all of this. And I was also so shocked that the first sale is actually next week. Right. Insane. So we'll definitely be following up with that. Mm-hmm. We'll see how the first sale goes. Headline number two comes to us from the art newspaper, where it was revealed that, quote, Why do some Picasso paintings deteriorate faster than others? Researchers have solved the mystery. 
Through a three-year research project, international researchers have discovered why one of four closely related paintings by Pablo Picasso has deteriorated more quickly than the others. So one of the first of its kind, the project has combined studies of chemical properties with observations of mechanical damage and marks um, a leap forward in conservators' efforts to prevent degradation through environmental control. The four works under observation were produced in no more than a few months while working at a friend's studio in Barcelona in 1917, and from then on, the works were stored in Picasso's family home until 1970. The works were then donated to the Picasso Museum in Barcelona, and since then have been exposed to identical environmental conditions, so these four paintings have really lived the same exact life. Yes. So staff questioned why one of the works, Hombre Sentado, which translates to seated man, has deteriorated more than the other three works. So the work shows signs of severe cracking all over the surface, and someone even compared it to a riverbed. And the team used both chemical analysis and non-invasive techniques, including x-ray, infrared, and reflectography to study various strata from surface paint films down to the canvas ground layer. And it was found that Picasso used a canvas with a tighter weave for Hombre Sentado, coating it with a thicker ground layer of animal glue, and that's part of why it aged the way it did. Right. Both factors meant larger internal stresses formed when the paintings were exposed to fluctuating humidity, so the way that certain pigments and binding media reacted caused the paint to degrade, and as a result, the paints gradually cracked when stresses built. And although it's not the most exciting result, it is important because in the past, conservators have relied mainly on chemical analysis to determine how some materials um, led to deterioration. Right. So what's so interesting is that it wasn't purely the materials because had it purely been the materials, all four of them would have experienced this level of deterioration, but they didn't. So combining these studies and focusing on chemical and mechanical damages offers a much more rounded picture and allows conservators to take a more informed approach to future conservation efforts, which is always exciting when advances are made in the field. Yeah, exactly. I actually interned at a museum in Florence when um, we were studying abroad in Italy, and one of my like jobs as an intern was to go room by room every day and check the temperature. Each room had a different um, like thermometer inside, and It was like so important that the temperature was not like changing ever because like you had to like input it into this Excel spreadsheet every day because um, it's like, I mean, the works were much older because they were from the Renaissance, but um, like even like a one degree difference can ruin a work. So it was like insane and especially like Florence tends to get like very humid Mm -hmm. because of the river and things like that. So I like was fascinated by that and then I was like oh my god maybe I should go into conservation and then I realized how many um chemistry classes you have to take to do that and I was like never mind (laughs) I love conservation I always find the story so interesting and that's also such an intern task that you had to do it's like so important but it's something no one wants to have to do no one wants to do yeah our Third headline comes to us from CNN, where it was reported that, quote, NFT prices are plummeting. 
what could this mean for the art world? So scam, pyramid scheme, and tech speculation bubble, such have been the more cynical responses to the rise of the NFT market. Plummeting prices for this type of token in recent days seem to indicate that the boom has already buzzed. And I just want to put it out there that Anna and I predicted this would happen. We called it. So maybe we, we should go into econ. <laughs> Yes, no, we definitely called this and no one believed us, um, but it was just like impossible to like sustain. So recent figures published by nonfungible.com show that the average price of NSTs, NFTs plummeted almost 70% from a peak of around 4000 a day in mid-February to around um, 1400 last week. And since Bloomberg first reported the price crash on April 3rd, sales remain low. Looking specifically at the market for NFTs linked to art, which boomed much more than the ones for music and film, sales dropped from 16.7 million to 12.5 million over the past five days. Yes, and given the inflationary hype surrounding NFTs, which reached its peak um, with a $6.93 million uh, Beeple sale on March 11 at Christie's, many say the price drop was a matter of when, not if. And something that I found interesting was even an NFT firm expected this dip in prices. Melissa Gilmore, the founder of the London-based NFT agency called Lillian Piper, said, quote, a drop in value was inevitable. There have been an oversaturation of platforms and it's getting hard to differentiate and navigate. Yeah, and the downturn, lo- downturn looked inevitable, especially because of reports of scams, issues with compatibility across marketplaces, and just questions over ownership and authentication. And some data suggests that in 2021, NFTs are making sizable gains, but it is important to remember that previously before this year, no one cared about them. So obviously there's been an increase in sales during the first quarter of 2021. And I think the story we talked about, about people throwing away their works at Christie's just like speaks to this point. Yeah, I agree. That story like for sure just like perfectly matches this week's story because I think, um, I mean, we are in art and we literally have never heard about NFTs before like this February. Right. So yeah, but yeah, they have been mainly um, like a boon for so-called crypto bros, which are people who like work in Silicon Valley and they have bought into the Ethereum network. And the question is whether the NFT market can move away from a pyramid scheme type scenario, which just rewards early investors to something more sustainable and inclusive. But the article did mention that the type of person like buying these works is just like your typical typical Silicon Valley like guy who is just like white and um, straight and like just like very privileged. So I think like it just like makes me laugh that everyone was like NFTs are like the art of inclusivity and like all these things and like they're for artists and now the article is like never mind they're just for like straight white guys in Silicon Valley and I think it's like buy it's a really similar type of person who would buy a spacesuit at auction at Sotheby's yes definitely And what's so interesting is that some firms are encouraging artists to match the price of their NFTs to the price of their physical works to try and avoid more bubbles, which is just like an anti-people movement. Yes, exactly. So it's like we're going back to the beginning. But also later in the article, there was another quote by the owner of the Lillian Piper firm and Melissa Gilmore. And she said that this is going to be a bumpy road. So like it just... 
is very confusing that even the owner of an NFT firm or the founder of an NFT firm is like so confused by this. Right. Like, sh- like she just- should be like leading the cause and be so confident. Exactly. And she's even like, who knows? Yeah, exactly. I'm just happy this craze is coming to a I'm happy end. we're not <laughs> participating in it, honestly. Yes. <laughs> Headline number four today comes from the New York Times, which reported that, quote, with the drone on the high line, an artist reemerges from controversy. Sam Durant reveals his first large-scale sculpture in the public sphere since the scaffold controversy in Minneapolis. For our listeners who might not know, his work Scaffold enveloped the artist in a storm of cultural debate over whether white artists should depict painful racial narratives that weren't necessarily their own stories to tell. Yes, but in May, the white fiberglass sculpture in the shape of a predator drone will be installed atop of the a 20-foot tall pole, and it will rotate in the wind on the high line. The work will also have a wingspan of 48 feet, almost the actual size of the remote-controlled military aircraft, but obviously stripped of its cameras and weapons and landing gear. Durant has dedicated his career to research-intensive projects about war, monuments, mass incarceration, and other difficult legacies of the U.S. Yeah, so this work kind of goes hand-in-hand with, like, his previous interest, and it was It's actually untitled, but it was conceived in 2016 when it was one of the 12 shortlisted along with Simone Lee's proposal for Brick House for a new monumental public art commission called the Highline Plinth. And that work is supposed to rotate every year and a half. So right now, Brick House is on view. Right. Brick House is currently on view at the Highline. And I think we both love it so much. I think we both love Lee's work, honestly. So it's just exciting to see it on the Highline. I think it is going to be different. I think we've become accustomed to seeing Lee's work Mm -hmm. there. So it'll be interesting to see how the new one plays out. Yeah, especially because it's at the part of the High Line where like Hudson Yards is and Hudson Yards like kind of open at the same time that the work was installed there. Mm -hmm. So I associate Hudson Yards with Lee's work now in a way. Um, Yeah. I honestly thought it was a permanent installation. I didn't realize that it was a rotating project. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. (laughs) Um, But the new work is so exciting because the piece will move and vary in visibility, something that Durant like plays with intentionally and in certain weather conditions and from different vantage points, it may almost be invisible against the sky. And the work is highly political because the goal is to make visible the drone warfare that America has been carrying out, especially after targeted killings that first proliferated during the Obama administration. Yes, and the New York Times article also included an interview that Durant carried out over the phone, um, like with the author of the article, since um, Durant moved to Berlin with his family from LA in 2018 and like the wake of the scaffold controversy. And the interview is really great. And it also reflects on his growth as a person and as an artist and the whole scaffold debacle. So, And we included a link. So for anyone who wants to like learn more and really read about this debate further, definitely look for that. And like hear about it in his own words. It's like at the bottom of the episode as always. Our fifth and very exciting final headline comes to us from Art News, where they reported that, quote, archaeologists discover childhood home of Harriet Tubman. A team of archaeologists scoured through the wetlands and woods along Maryland's eastern shore in search of the long-lost childhood home of abolitionist Harriet Tubman. 
The cabin has eluded historians for over two decades, although historical wills and land deeds proved it was somewhere out there. So Tubman is believed to have lived in the cabin between the ages of 17 and 22 from 1839 to 1844. Her father was granted 10 acres of land when he was um, freed from slavery around 1836, where he settled with his family. And her father himself was a member of the abolitionist organization helping to escort enslaved people north. In an attempt to find the home, Julie M. Shablitzi, the chief archaeologist for Maryland State Highway Administration and leader of the excavation, swept a metal detector along an abandoned road. She was hoping to find nails or other signs of a structure, and she struck gold when she actually found a coin from 1808, which is the year that Tubman's parents, Ben Ross and Harry and Harriet Green were married, and the coin is imprinted with the word liberty. Yeah, and nearby were ceramic pieces dated to the 1820s and 1840s, and not too far away, um, the team found the cabin of the Underground Railroad conductor. The cabin had been privately owned for years, so not the cabin. The land where the cabin is had been privately owned for years, so it is Um, It was impossible to conduct an archaeological excavation until the land was bought by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And then excavations began last fall, but then the pandemic delayed progress until the spring. Like the pandemic has delayed progress on every project we discuss. Right. The Ben Ross home site will eventually be open to visitors and it will be added to the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Byway, a 25-mile self-guided drive that includes more than 30 sites important to Tubman's life and legacy. I loved this so much because when you think of an excavation, I just think of Egypt and pyramids and so much ancient history that it's so crazy to think they're conducting such intense excavations like here in the U.S. Yeah, I agree. It's also so important to history and just like being able to find something so historically significant is amazing. I agree. It's just so exciting. Finally, some emerging news before we go. As revealed by Forbes, quote, Michelangelo's David gets ultra-realistic 3D printed copy. So complete with cracks, staining, and other imperfections, a 3D printed copy of Michelangelo's sculptural masterpiece, David, aims to be the most faithful replica of the statue ever made. The process began in December last year by scanning the original sculpture to obtain a digital version. The physical version is 3D printed and made from acrylic resin weighing 10 times less than the real Michelangelo sculpture. The team of engineers and technicians then produced 14 individual pieces using 3D printers and expert restorers then assembled the various parts and carefully added a surface finish to mimic exactly the Renaissance original. So they basically had to like ruin it a little bit. It reminds yeah. me of when you have projects when you're younger and you have to stain them with tea bags to like make it look old and like you burn the paper and then it looks like an old piece of paper. Oh my god, yeah, I actually remember one time I had to, like, write an old letter, and then I tried to, like, burn it in the stove, and, like, it all set on fire. It was such a disaster. That's awesome. Don't recommend. I think my mom was so mad. Anyways, the 3D printed copy of Michelangelo's David is now on its way to Dubai to be exhibited at the Reschedule Expo 2020 in October. So I can't wait to see what the response is going to be from people who get to see the statue, especially those who have seen the original like if they can even 
see a difference because I don't think I you'll agree. be able to. I mean, us in pictures for sure will not be able to tell. Um, so hopefully someone writes a good review about it. It's kind of a cool idea too. Like they could do it with other things and then people like here in the U.S. would get to see works that are in Europe yeah. that they otherwise would not get to. And if it's such an exact replica, like does it matter? This I is kind know. of different, but here in Mexico, uh, I think it was last year, maybe like a couple of months ago. I'm not really sure. Time has just escaped me. Um, <laughs> but they did a like reconstruction of this Eastern Chapel with like digital images and everyone was like it's amazing like it looks exactly like the same like the original yeah. but it's obviously just like digital um and I never went to see it just because you've seen the I real see one why, why I've seen the real one and then I was like lazy and didn't go I should have but apparently it was like super incredible yeah I think it's a cool concept it would yeah. definitely be exciting to see what the reaction we'll just, is we'll just wait and see but I think that's it for today. Yeah, so this is it for the day. Hopefully the audio is great and you guys won't even be able to tell that we're in two different countries right now. And tune in for next Monday's Monday Chatter Check-In, which we actually pre-recorded. Yeah, so we're that won't, won't be long distance. And we're so excited to release it. Yes. Thank Have you. a great weekend. <laughs>